Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 266, and today we're going to talk about what happens when there's too much muscle breakdown, a condition called rhabdomyolysis. Now, rhabdomyolysis is a medical condition arising from a number of different causes, all of which lead to excessive breakdown of the muscle cell and release of the contents that are normally contained within the muscle into the bloodstream. We're talking about things like potassium, phosphate, myoglobin, and calcium. These things are all released in large quantities into the bloodstream, causing serious, potentially fatal complications. In today's podcast, we'll talk about what causes rhabdomyolysis, along with how it's diagnosed, treated, and how to avoid it. Today, I'm joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. I'm feeling good. Ready to do this thing. All right. Well, let's start out with a clinical case to get the juices flowing. All right. So this is a 35-year-old healthy female presents to her primary care physician 24 hours after a CrossFit competition with worsening abdominal pain and swelling. Now, if I just stop right there, what do you, like, if you're her PCP, you see her and that's the only thing you know about her, what's, what's next? Oh boy. I mean, abdominal, just abdominal pain and swelling, taking that at face value, there's already a, a lengthy list. Now, knowing that this is an acute presentation of this narrows it uh, uh, quite a bit. And then after exercise in a, in a previously healthy person, then of course, the topic of today's podcast is something that comes to mind. If there's bleeding going on, if there was like an undiagnosed, you know, pregnancy and <laughs> an unknown pregnancy and the complication from that there. So there's just a long list of possible things that could be coming up in this scenario. There's a 0% chance that she walks out of your office without getting a pregnancy test. 0%. <laughs> There's just absolutely no way. Uh, but in any case, this woman in particular, will move down the case. We'll see what you say. She's five foot one, 132 pounds, and she's been training for about five years, four to five times per week. She has a back squat, one rep max of 315 pounds. She front squats 275 pounds, which is probably the most impressive thing here. She cleans 215 and she snatches 140. Now, the CrossFit competition consisted of five workouts over two days. Workout one was uh, 21, 15, nine. That's 21 reps, 15 reps, nine reps of chest-to-bar pull-ups and thrusters at 88 pounds. I think that's heavy Fran or like Fran on steroids because Fran is normally what, 21, 15, nine, just regular pull-ups and thrusters. 95 and 65 for men and women, right? So yeah, so it's got to be heavy. For the women here, a little, a little heavier, sure. A little heavier, <laughs> a little harder with the chest-to-bar pull-ups. So that's workout one which is in the afternoon on day one. In the evening on day one, they do workout two, 60 glute ham developer sit-ups, uh, followed by 15 toes to bar, That's which to me, <laughs> to, to, to me, it's like 60 glute ham developer sit-ups. And then at the end, you're like, oh yeah, and by the way, do 15 toes to bar, yeah, just in case. Yeah. That's okay. the session that did it. Yeah. And then I believe workout three was at the end of the first day of competition. It's, hey, oh, after all of that, do a one rep max snatch and an overhead squat. So just like work up, I assume build to a one RM snatch and overhead squat. On day two, they started it out with a five minute AMRAP, so as many reps as possible of strict handstand pushups, which, okay, that's fine. And then workout five was 40 deadlifts at 100 pounds, 20 kettlebell clean and jerks at 55 pounds, and then five bar muscle ups. I assumed it's just for time altogether. Now, to me, honestly, 
the series of workouts, I don't know. Do you think you could make it through that without uh, some sort of untoward outcome? I think I can make it through all of that. However, since I do not at all train glute ham developer sit-ups, which, as we've said, are, are actually quite common as a cause of like pretty debilitating abdominal soreness for a lot of people who get into them. Like when I'm working with people who want to incorporate them, that's something that I introduce extremely gradually. Like you might do like a total of five in your first session, if you can even if you can even do that. And so that's the session that I think even for me, because I don't do that movement ever, um, I'd be pretty smoked by that second workout. But the rest, yes, the rest are all fine. You know, it's funny. Uh, I did my first CrossFit level one. I think it was like, it was either 2009 or 2010. I mean, it was way back, way back then. And uh, they teach you, I'm putting this in air quotes, you guys can't see this, but they teach you, we're, we're being charitable with the term teach, how to do glute ham developer sit-ups. And at the end of this sort of teaching lesson, they're like, now be careful with these because we've heard multiple reports of people getting rhabdomyolysis in their abs we call it abdo. And then everyone goes, <laughs> chuckles. And if you recall, when we went to the CrossFit level one medical provider cert in 2018, it was the same thing. Yeah. They, they, they literally the exact same thing. It's like almost verbatim. It's like they yeah. wrote it down like a script. And it's they're like, all, they're all automatons teaching that, that class. I think <laughs> if, if you know that this particular exercise is, is very, uh, in general, people are unaccustomed to it and presents such a risk, it kind of, you know, I don't know that I would be joking about that, like abdo or because rhabdomyolysis and particularly in vulnerable individuals could be, uh, well, Extremely fatal. Serious. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk, we'll talk about that here shortly. All right. So let's keep going on with the case here now. And just upon, to, just to clarify the reason why you went into this great level of specific details, because this is a real case. This is a real case report that you're, this is real that you're telling here. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Yeah. Then it was reported in 2018. So, right. uh, yeah. And, and again, I think when people think about Rabdo and if they, if first thing goes to CrossFit, they're like, oh yeah, CrossFit games, you know, 20 different workouts or whatever over four or five days, this massive sort of energy expenditure, long workouts, whatever, like none of these workouts probably lasted longer than 10 minutes. Yeah. I don't think, you know, mm -hmm. and so really that's maybe an hour of actually working out over two days and I'm like, mm, okay, maybe not so bad. But in any yeah. case, Day one, she presented to her primary care physician uh, 24 hours after the last workout. Her creatinine or creatine kinase, her CK level, was 43,322 units per liter. Now, if you're not familiar with CK, this is effectively an enzyme contained in the muscle, helps with energy uh, creation, and its normal value is 26 to 140. Now, if you saw that, if for whatever reason you drew a CK level on this person because of the potential, well, maybe an exertion related sort of issue, and you saw 43,000, what then what goes off in your head? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is it, that lab in isolation leads me to just have questions about, as usual with all tests, the context in which it was drawn, what's going on with the person, are they reporting symptoms, et cetera. And so in this, in this patient who's having muscle pain, who's having muscle swelling, who's having a CK level this elevated, this is somebody who needs to go to the hospital. Yeah, it was kind of weird because. It's, so she presumably went to her PCP one day after and be like, hey, what did you do this weekend? You know, you said you have abdominal pain and maybe some muscle swelling or whatever. Uh, well, you know, what were you doing? And the, she goes, ah, it was an exercise competition. And even if the doctor was unaware of like what CrossFit is, he somehow he or she gets a CK level and it's 43,000. And instead of being like, dang, that's high. We should maybe like evaluate you further or go to the hospital. He's like, he or she is like, ah, you know what? Take this NSAID. <laughs> and go home and drink plenty of water. Uh, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, my guess in this context is because she went to a clinic and and uh, the, the way practice flow goes in an outpatient clinical setting is a bit different than an ER in hospital. I'm very spoiled in that I can order a CK level and have it done in like an hour if I want to in the hospital. If you go to a clinic, you know, he would have seen her and said, well, I need you to go to the lab and get these drawn. And so she would have probably gone to the lab, gotten it drawn. And then, you know, outpatient labs are not always processed at the same kind of uh, breakneck speed as I can get them done in the hospital. So maybe he didn't, maybe that was late in the day. He didn't see the result until the next morning. He has to do something with her that day. So he sent her home. And, you know, if he wasn't, didn't have a high suspicion for rhabdo, then telling her to do that on its face might've been reasonable. But as soon as he got that number result in his, uh, in his uh, EMR inbox, that should have resulted in a phone call and telling her to go to the, <laughs> go to the hospital. Yeah. I assume the lab who ran it was like, yo, this is high. And they like either like page the doc, sent him an electronic message through the EMR, as you said, the electronic medical record. And that was flagged because yo, this is either high and like spurious or like high and dangerous. You need to be aware either way. So in any case, sent home with an NSAID, told to drink plenty of water, which I think is okay with the water, but I don't know that I would set her home. Uh, three days later, her pain and muscle swelling were unchanged. So she went to the emergency room. At the time, her CK level was now 77,690 units per liter. Again, the normal range is 26 to 140, but she had normal kidney function based on uh, the labs that were drawn. So effectively, all of her electrolyte levels were normal. Her creatinine level was normal, but the CK level was through the roof. Uh, additionally, her liver function tests, ALT and AST, were elevated to 74 and 477. The normal value is 30, less than 33 for both, which is not unusual because we know that exercise, even like light or moderate exercise, will elevate ALT and AST for days after exercise. So like if you were getting your labs done, as my dad says, I'm getting my my lab's done. And you really want the chart to look nice. You shouldn't exercise for a few days before the lab. But on the other hand, I don't know that I would hold off on training just to like buff the chart. The only time I might do that is like if somebody has like a known concern for like liver, you know, function abnormalities or something, in which case you really just want to get a good sense on like, how's the liver working? What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that in general. If I'm evaluating somebody and I'm worried about, I don't know, some kind of liver injury from a contaminated supplement or hepatitis or alcohol injury issues or something like that. And and there happens to be exercise in the mix, which is, let's say, relatively uncommon uh, scenario to run into um, where these same folks are like hard training, but it certainly can happen, especially with the, the supplement concerns. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that would be a situation where I wouldn't want it to be confounded by like high intensity exercise. I think it, that in most like pretty well-trained people, um, uh, that these enzymes don't probably get terribly high. I'd, I'd be curious. I've never gotten mine checked, you know, with close proximity to training. I don't actually know that I've gotten them checked at all because I haven't had a reason to. Um, but I don't think that they would get terribly elevated in like a well, well-trained individual. In this, in this case scenario, I mean, hers are 74 and 477. I would actually, you know, based on my experience seeing a lot of rhabdo, uh, over the years, I'm actually I'm surprised they're not higher, given that her CK was over 77,000. I would, you know, I've seen, you know, AST and ALT getting into the several thousands, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, looking like pretty scary until you realize that it's due to rhabdo and not because they're in like, you know, acute liver failure or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was like, why are they low? Like, is something else going on? Like, that's causing a spuriously low liver liver uh, function test but in any case so this person's now in the emergency room you get paged oh, dr baraki we have a person down here with no, it's kidding uh, okay so what do you do in this particular situation yeah i mean the immediate concern is looking at those labs to make sure that you know see what see what's going on with the patient's kidneys see what's going on with their potassium levels are probably like the most immediate upfront concerns that i have 
and then uh, and then glancing over everything else and then go and seeing the person and getting them admitted to the hospital and started on treatment. I mean, this is somebody who definitively, you know, would meet criteria to get admitted and treated as an inpatient. This is not something that should be managed at home. Yeah. And so subsequently, that's what happened. She was admitted, given a ton of fluids and effectively discharged from the hospital. Four days later, she was advised to avoid intense exercise. Uh, in the outpatient setting, there was a follow-up exam that revealed her serum CK level was still ele- elevated to over 3,000 10 days after the competition, and it was 1,200 on the 25th day after the competition. And so you're thinking about it like that, like imagine she went in for like her yearly labs. I don't, we'll just say that she's doing that. And it was a month after this competition and her CK was 1200. Again, if you were her PCP, her primary care physician in the outpatient setting, and you did not know about this exercise competition a month earlier, and you saw that CK level, you'd be like, dude, what? It's kind of like interesting that it stayed up uh, for that, that high. And she even had muscle pain 25 days afterwards. So pretty, pretty uh, interesting case here. I've linked that in the show notes below. That is a great segue into this podcast, which is on rhabdomyolysis. So what is rhabdomyolysis? It's a complex medical condition involving the rapid breakdown of damaged or injured muscle tissue, skeletal muscle tissue, leading to the direct release of intracellular muscle contents. Now, clinically, rhabdomyolysis is characterized by a triad. It's called a classic triad of myalgia, which is muscle pain, muscle weakness, and red to brown urine, dark urine, sometimes called cola-colored urine, due to myoglobinuria. That's just myoglobin in the urine. Interestingly, though, less than 10% of rhabdomyolysis cases have this triad, and over half of the patients do not report muscle pain or weakness, which makes you wonder, like, why is this called the classic triad if, like, nobody has it? Uh, Austin, when you've seen this, what is the most common reason why people actually come into the hospital? Yeah, I think that the most common reason I've seen is people who have muscle discomfort and a sensation of swelling in the extremities that have been exercised and are are having this issue ongoing. That's probably the most common reason. Um, I would say next most common is that I would see would be the the darkening of the urine. And I would say that in general, it's pretty relatively uncommon for me to see somebody who has neither pain nor the discolored urine and is only coming in just for sensation of weakness. And I happen to find them to have rhabdo. I can count on one hand the number of times that's happened. And when that's happened, it's actually not been due to exercise. Um, it's been rhabdo due to other reasons, what we call non-exertional rhabdomyolysis as compared with exertional rhabdomyolysis, which is going to be the main topic that we discussed today. So typically, it's the muscle pain and swelling sensation. They're like, my legs, my calves feel tight or, or uncomfortable or the arms or, or whatever body area is most impacted or some and or the discoloration of the urine would be the, the main uh, reasons why I would see these people. I'm just trying to put myself in her shoes, this particular case's shoes. And I'm like, muscle pain? Eh, I deal with that from time to time. Muscle soreness, eh, muscle swelling. Hey, got a sick pump. It's just lasting for me. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, uh, the minute I see dark colored urine, bro, I'm in the car. I'm on the way to yeah. the emergency room. So yeah. I thought for sure, like it would just be, uh, you know, why did you come in today? What brought you into the hospital today? Dark colored urine. But that's yeah. interesting that you, you think it's mostly muscle swelling and, and weakness and, and pain and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the pathophysiology of rhabdomyolysis. So like, why does it happen? In general, rhabdomyolysis results from a specific, quote, insult to the muscle that ultimately leads to large amounts of muscle damage and subsequent breakdown. These initial insults can include direct muscle damage from things like crushing syndrome. So people in a car accident, for example, who get a limb wedged between like, I don't know, the door and the steering wheel or other things that actually lead to large amounts of muscular damage due to it being crushed. 
Also surgery with prolonged immobilization uh, or vascular occlusion, physical restraints, particularly for like combative individuals or people who are moving around uh, a lot, compression of blood vessels with tourniquets. And actually I went down a rabbit hole trying to see like, are there any case reports of rhabdomyolysis with blood flow restriction training? And I came up empty. So blood flow restriction training is fine, apparently. Yeah. Low risk rhabdo. Uh, burn or electrical injuries. And again, I went down the rabbit hole just trying to see like, well, there's some interesting case reports. And yes, it, including some like tragic ones. Kids yeah. uh, surround with electrical outlets and uh, mm -hmm. getting zapped. Yeah. Uh, and, or as in the case we started with prolonged strenuous physical exertion, particularly to unaccustomed events. In this case, likely the glute ham developer sit up. It was reported in the case report that this individual had pre like not done glute ham developer sit-ups beforehand. Yeah. And so I think, I don't know if I was like a quote team doc for like a bunch of CrossFit athletes in this workout, like showed up in the hopper or something i'd be like hey why don't you uh why don't you sit this one out yeah right exactly yeah one and and, and one other cause of uh, direct muscular damage i would add to this list that you didn't mention something that we unfortunately sometimes see is in older folks um uh, people who have sarcopenia which we've talked about uh, for a long time or who for whatever reason um have limited mobility and if they take a fall and they like live alone uh, they can be down on the ground for hours to days and so i've had you know older folks with whatever sort of immobilizing condition um, and, and they get brought in and maybe they were found down and they've been down for, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, something like that. And we find that they have rhabdo just because the direct pressure on that muscle and they're like not moving. And so that muscle ends up, you know, lacking sufficient blood flow, breaking down, necrosis and rhabdomyolysis develops. So that's actually something that happens more often than you think. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, we can also get rhabdomyolysis via muscular damage from indirect sources. So things like heat illness, which is the body's inability to tolerate and compensate for environmental heat. So every, you know, heat stroke, heat illness, uh, that can all uh, contribute. Hyperkinetic states, so individuals having seizures, for example. Um, there are various types of myopathies, which are basically just inflammatory conditions of the muscle. These uh, can be related to certain medications, different hereditary conditions, particularly those involving uh, like glycogen metabolism, fat metabolism, things like that, uh, infections, autoimmune diseases. There's a bunch of different myopathies. If you want to go down the rabbit hole, I implore you to do so, but uh, try not try to stay off Google when you do this. Like you can go to like stat pearls or on PubMed and that'll give you some good resources there. Uh, also COVID. And I know we're now we're going to get flagged for talking about COVID on a podcast or something. So probably going to be a disclaimer or something. But COVID, uh, for example, has been shown to cause rhabdomyolysis in a few different uh, case reports. Uh, I don't know that that's unusual as far as like viral infections potentially causing that. But I had not previously heard of COVID actually causing uh, or leading to exertional rhabdomyolysis. I guess it wouldn't really be exertional unless they were exercising and happen to have COVID. But uh, in the case report, that wasn't really reported. But even things like flu, uh, so influenza, HIV, also been associated as indirect causes of excessive muscular damage. Things like uh, other drugs, particularly cocaine and amphetamines, stimulants in general, although caffeine, uh, unless people are taking a ton of it, ten tends not to contribute, but definitely cocaine, amphetamines, other uh, stimulant-type medications or, or, or drugs. Sickle cell anemia is actually the, probably the most interesting thing that I had read about uh, in preparation for this podcast. So sickle cell anemia, effectively, uh, the red blood cells are shaped uh, in a way that kind of looks like a sickle, apparently due to um, genetic genetic uh, disorder. And this can lead to rhabdomyolysis in some individuals. And the way that the authors describe 
rhabdomyolysis for individuals with sickle cell. They term it explosive sort of rhabdomyolysis. Apparently, individuals with sickle cell anemia, rhabdomyolysis syndrome can present as a conscious collapse during exercise, which is termed exertional collapse associated with sickle cell trait. ECAST is the acronym there. Uh, in these cases of exertional rhabdomyolysis complicated by sickle cell trait, with collapse, there's an increased risk of serious complications like compartment syndrome, electrolyte or metabolic disturbances, heart arrhythmias, and sudden death. And in fact, one of the authors who's apparently a leading expert in sickle cell anemia and rhabdomyolysis says the only fatal cases that they've seen of rhabdomyolysis has been in individuals with sickle cell, tra sickle cell trait. Have you seen a, an individual with sickle cell anemia and rhabdo? Yeah, so so to distinguish, you know, sickle cell anemia is like the full blown, you know, mu uh, mutation that, that that people have leading to abnormal hemoglobin, and and what you're describing here with ECAST is is a sickle cell trait, which is not necessarily having the full mutation. I've seen one case of this ever, and it was, I agree, the most severe case of rhabdomyolysis that I've ever seen. It was in a 20 year old who had sudden collapse during an exercise session. Um, and got brought into the hospital. And so his CK levels uh, when he showed up were greater than 100,000. That was the way the lab reported it, meaning it was just like off the upper limit. It didn't go any higher than that. Some labs can dilute and get a better calculation. Um, but typically, once you start treating rhabdo uh, uh, effectively, you see a pretty you know quick and, and, and steady decline in the CK levels a lot of the time. Not always. Sometimes it still continues to go up before it comes down. His CK level remained just greater than 100,000 for the first like six-ish days of his admission. Uh, so it was by far the worst. He was 20 years old, didn't have any other medical problems until this happened. And then we discovered he had sickle cell trait and he ended up requiring he ended up requiring dialysis and having a very complicated kind of course in the hospital. However, what really shocked me um, after seeing him go through all this is I thought, you know, I, I um, followed up on him uh, uh, months later and found that his uh, kidney function had uh, nearly completely recovered back down and his creatinine got back all the way down to like one or 1 1.2 or something like that. So he was off of dialysis at that point. So it was a month long ordeal, very complicated. Lots of other things happened in the interim, but the worst case of rhabdo I've ever seen was, was ECAST, this particular scenario that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah, the the conscious collapse during exercise. I'm, again, I'm trying to put myself in this individual's yeah. shoes. It's like you go down, you collapse, and so hey, are you okay? Like, did what happened? Did you black out? Did you you know somebody hit you in the head? Like, what's going on? It's like, no, I just I fell, uh, and they're like, why? And you're like, don't know. <laughs> yeah, pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, in any case, after the insult to the muscle, the ion channels that normally maintain low levels of sodium and calcium and high levels of potassium within the muscle fibers no longer work appropriately. Effectively, you've damaged the cellular membrane and the ion channels that are in the cellular membrane. It's all torn to shit, all right? And this causes a massive shift of sodium and calcium into the muscle fiber, thereby causing further damage, swelling, and breakdown of the muscle, perpetuating a sort of self-sustaining muscle breakdown cycle and muscular fiber death or necrosis. Now, because the muscle is broken down so extensively, the contents that were previously inside the muscle are released into the bloodstream in mass quantities. So let's talk about them. First up is myoglobin. Now, myoglobin is an iron-containing protein that is responsible for de delivering oxygen to the working muscle. And myoglobin is pretty small. It's rapidly excreted into the urine from the blood. And due to its relatively small size, it's, uh, it often results in the production of red to brown urine. It appears in the urine when the plasma concentration exceeds about 1.5 milligrams per deciliter and urine levels exceed approximately 100 to 300 milligrams per deciliter. Now, you guys don't need to remember those numbers, but what you need to know is that in the normal urine sample, 
an individual without rhabdomyolysis, there's effectively no myoglobin in the urine. It's very, very low. Usually you can't detect any of it. You get some trace amounts here and there, but otherwise the normal level is effectively zero. Uh, and urine testing can actually pick up far lower levels. So to Austin's point, when people present with like muscle pain and weakness, potentially with swelling, but no dark colored urine, you do a urinalysis and you can pick up on myoglobin if it's there. Uh, for completeness, because people are like myoglobin, that sounds a lot like hemoglobin. What's, what's that? Hemoglobin is another iron-containing sort of protein capable of producing dark urine, but is much larger and requires much higher plasma concentrations of so blood concentrations before it, you get a bunch of it in the urine and the urine changes colors. Uh, in any case, high levels of myoglobin in the blood can get filtered by the kidney and can cause what's known as acute kidney injury, sometimes called AKI, due to tubular obstruction. So the actual tubules in the kidneys themselves get obstructed by these iron-containing, we call them pigment casts and you can also get tubular damage from the iron containing proteins themselves effectively irons like yo man what are you doing you trying to get rid of me i don't think so and messes with the tubules and so this acute kidney injury uh, can be due to the iron containing pigment itself from the myoglobin but also due to hypovolemia which just low amounts of uh fluid volume that's normally contained within the blood itself a substantial amount of the body's water effectively enters the damaged muscle tissue it goes out of the blood vessels, and this is called third spacing. So effectively, you don't have enough blood going to your organs, including the kidney, and you get kidney damage. Uh, we call that AKI. AKI or acute kidney injury occurs somewhere between 15 to over 50% of folks with rhabdomyolysis, depending on the particular case. So is it exertional versus non-exertional and the individual? Do they have any existing kidney disease? Do they have other medical conditions that might make them more vulnerable? Now, Austin, when you're evaluating people, uh, and you suspect rhabdomyolysis, assume you're getting, you know, a number of lab tests, including, you know, measures of kidney function, what sort of numbers or what sort of things worry you on these blood tests when you're looking for like a uh, kidney injury? Yeah, I mean, it's going to get my attention anytime that the number that we use to, to monitor people's uh, uh, kidney function, usually the, the creatinine is the main number that we'll monitor. Anytime that's higher than what the person's usual level is, um, that's going to get my attention. But then the higher it is from there in terms of like multiples of their normal. So if their normal is 0.5 and they come in and it's like 0.9, okay, that's going to get my attention a little bit, but, but I'm not terribly concerned. If somebody's normal is 0.5 and they're coming in and they're actually at like 4.5 or something, I'm a lot more concerned. And if they come in and they're at like 10 or something, then I'm extremely concerned. So it's just how many multiples of their normal um, starting level are they up? And just, it's like a, a, a linear if not exponential risk in terms of level of concern the more the higher it is uh, uh, from there yeah and with higher levels you also expect other sort of abnormalities with respect to kidney function various electrolytes which we'll talk about here shortly okay so that's the story though with myoglobin and the kidneys and this risk for acute kidney injury we'll keep coming back to the kidneys throughout this podcast uh, another abnormality you're going to see on lab testing again we kind of referred to it earlier in the case report is creatine kinase so creatine kinase is also normally stored within the muscle itself as it plays a role in energy production within muscle cells and so we call the ck again that stands for creatine kinase now normal levels are between 26 to 140 units per liter but in rhabdomyolysis serum creatinine kinase or creatine kinase or ck levels uh, can be at you know five times the upper limit of normal but also much much higher to your point about the person with sickle cell trait, it was over 100,000, which is 100 times higher than the, uh, the uh, upper limit. Um, and this actually leads us into a pretty interesting discussion because when I conceptualize 
rhabdomyolysis, particularly exertional rhabdomyolysis. I view it on this sort of continuum, right, where you have like delayed onset muscle soreness, DOMS, on one side of it, and on the complete other side, the more severe side, you have rhabdomyolysis. And one thing I hadn't put in there in the middle because I, I wasn't too aware of it, I hadn't really de delved into the research, is this other sort of not condition because it's I don't want to medicalize like normal things, but an interesting finding we'll we'll say we call it hyper CKemia, so hyper creatine kinase emia. These are people that just have really high levels of CK, for example, and maybe some myoglobin on their urinalysis, but no other signs of rhabdomyolysis. So if we go through this continuum on the left side, the sort of uh, uh, you know benign side, if you will, you have DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. This is a sort of self-limited physiological response to exercise resulting in mild to moderate muscle pain and soreness and elevations in serum uh, muscle enzyme levels like CK. Uh, and so we think this is due to, again, muscle sort of damage, muscle protein breakdown, the inflammatory cascade effectively being the cavalry that comes to the rescue and muscle remodeling repair goes on. And so that's why you sort of feel that after a workout, particularly a workout with like novel exercises or more volume or potentially in an environmentally stressful sort of a situation. So more heat or it's very cold or something like that. Um, in this way, you know, rhabdo could be considered an extreme continuation of DOMS, but since the muscle damage isn't so severe with DOMS, the risk of kidney injury, electrolyte abnormalities, et cetera, are low. Effectively, the amount of muscle damage that's taken place is far, far less than what we see in rhabdo. Now in the middle, again, this is sort of newer condition to me anyway is called hyper CKemia, hyper creatine kinesemia, which is extremely high elevated levels of CK. Uh, we're talking about levels into like the 30,000, 40,000 mark uh, with some myoglobin in the urine, uh, but no severe muscle symptoms. So no muscle pain uh, that's severe, no muscle weakness, no muscle swelling that's severe. And more importantly, no organ damage, no evidence of AKI, so that acute kidney injury, liver dysfunction, the electrolyte abnormalities aren't present. And so it's just like people who, in some cases, uh, and like there's data on ultramarathoners, for example, have really high levels of CK, some myoglobin in the urine, even some hemoglobin in the urine that's from exercise as well, but no other signs or symptoms. And you're like, hmm, kind of smells like rhabdo, but not quite there yet. And so again, it's just another point on this continuum. Uh, this has been shown also in military personnel, also Division I American football player, uh, college football players. They have CK levels greater than five times the upper limit. And again, presence of myoglobin in the urine. And if you're just ch checking boxes, you're like, hmm, kind of smells like rhabdo, but no other signs or symptoms. Um, and again, it's just well accepted that pretty much any type of exercise, even low to moderate intensity exercise, increases CK levels into the you know, that you could measure. Uh, but again, I just want to sort of divorce the idea between just CK levels and sort of like badness because it just, it happens. And in some individuals, the response is super robust. Have you ever seen, if you could recall a case that now makes sense as being called like hyper CKemia? Have you seen anything like that in the hospital? Yeah. I mean, I've not seen this particular term, but as a concept, it's something I've been very well aware of, not just from you know clinical work, but also this is something that leads people to our forum a lot, posting questions. And I think it is worth emphasizing because for some reason, I guess a lot of the folks who come on our forum and they post and they say, you know, I had this, my CK level checked and it was this high and my doctor freaked out and told me to stop exercising or something like that. And our usual response is like, why was it checked? Did you have like signs or symptoms that would be concerning for something like rhabdo? And usually the answer is no, in which case they shouldn't have checked it at all. I guess there's, I guess there's, there's some clinicians out there who like when they hear that their patient is exercising, they choose to add on a CK level onto their labs, which 
is not necessary and should not be done um, because it's completely unsurprising that somebody who is active training, particularly in close proximity to getting their labs done, the CK is going to be elevated. And if that's elevated, um, that does not diagnose rhabdomyolysis. Um, this is something I see extremely commonly, both with our consultations and forum and also clinically where, you know, somebody might have a little bit of an elevated, you know, CK level, maybe it's like, you know, 4,000 or something and they're, and they're in the ER and I might get called for, is this rhabdo? And no, uh, in that it might not be rhabdo for that particular person, not only because of the relatively modest elevation in that lab parameter, um, but also maybe the patient didn't have uh, significant symptoms that would have led me to check it in the first place. So definitely unsurprising that uh, I, I just view this as like a marker for like, yep, you trained <laughs> and is not something that is diagnostic on its own in the absence of the other features that we would look for, the pain, the swelling, potentially weakness, the urinary stuff, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, there's been a number of studies that have tried to correlate, you know, CK levels to like exercise recovery or fatigue from exercise, and it doesn't correlate well at all. But I don't know if just maybe the presence of that idea in like the in academic circles, maybe is just like a holdover or like, hey, look, CK is elevated in general badness. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We should just divorce that idea. I, and the I, other thing, the other thing that to point out is that the, the, the CK itself is not toxic. Or harmful. The reason, you know, this is also a misconception is that when people get rhabdo and they get a CK check, then it's very elevated and, and we want that number to come down, which I agree. That's like one of my treatment endpoints when I'm treating somebody for this is I want that number to come down below 5,000 before I feel okay, like letting you go home. Um, but that, but it's not because I'm worried that the CK is toxic. It is a marker for the severity of muscle damage. And what I'm really worried about is the, is the potential for myoglobin induced injury or like potassium derangements and things like that. Um, so the CK is not toxic just for yeah. the record. You're not worried about the CK itself. You're worried about why it's elevated and yes, what it's correct. contributed to otherwise. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay. And, and speaking to that, there are other components that were with inside the muscle. So things like potassium, phosphate, calcium. These things are also released, which can cause electrolyte abnormalities, which can lead to a number of different worrisome problems, So, such as hyperkalemia, which is high or elevated level of potassium. So potassium, uh, the, a, a lot of your body's potassium stores are within the muscle. And in fact, in previous studies on like body composition changes, muscle mass changes over time, they used total body potassium as like a way to measure total uh, body muscle mass uh, changes. But in any case, Austin, if somebody's potassium level is through the roof uh, you were, and you saw hyperkalemia or you got a lab sort of notification, yo, your potassium super high, like you're worried about arrhythmias, you're worried about other sort of uh, organ dysfunction just due to the high potassium levels, yeah? Yeah, if I believe that that uh, lab draw is giving me an accurate result, then that is an absolute emergency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, got to get the potassium level back to, back to normal. And so, yeah, it's no surprise that in some severe cases of rhabdomyolysis, again, generally not exertional rhabdomyolysis, so like from excessive exercise, you do run the risk of uh, arrhythmia, so an abnormal uh, heart, uh, heart rhythm, and sudden cardiac arrest. Other electrolyte abnormalities that are seen with Rhabdomyolysis are hyperphosphatemia because phosphate's usually contained in the muscle as well. And so that's released into the bloodstream. Hypocalcemia can also occur as calcium is sort of sequestered into the damaged necrotic muscle tissue. And there's also a reduced parathyroid hormone response in bone. Interestingly, I found that there was like an increase in calcitriol, which is like a, a subtype of vitamin D uh, in the, you know, making of active vitamin D uh, pathway, and it can cause this mild secondary hyperparathyroidism. I didn't see, find much data on like parathyroid levels throughout the course of rhabdomyolysis, but I just thought it was interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen a bunch, like some abnormal parathyroid uh, endocrine activity and were like shrugged your shoulders, but now 
if you saw that with <laughs> no yeah i've seen I've, I've definitely seen calcium swings in the recovery phase of rhabdo calcium that can swing abnormally high and that's just something that we know how to manage too um but yeah. that's expected in in severe cases yeah the last sort of complication uh that we we do get worried about is called compartment syndrome so effectively uh when you're administering one of the treatments for rhabdomyolysis is administration of fluids and we'll talk about that here uh, after the break but um when people are given fluids particularly high amounts of fluids potentially if there's a closed space so blood flow uh, is not uh, as it should be you can get increased pressure and if this happens in a limb for example and you're more fluids going in than it's coming out and it stays there you can get a bunch of pressure build up and it can uh, compress arteries veins nerves etc ultimately leading to greater amounts of muscle death and this is an emergency have you ever seen compartment syndrome from uh, from rhabdo yes <laughs> from, from, ex- from exertion and from other things exertional exertional related uh, complications um with this that needed like fasciotomies and things like that where they needed to fillet the person's limb open to relieve the pressure which is pretty pretty gnarly yeah i actually was evaluated for elective fasciotomy i don't know if you know that did i ever tell you the story uh i think you might have told me before is this for like a supposed exertional compartment syndrome type of yeah. uh, concern yeah, so there's this condition we call it arm pump in uh, in motocross racing, and so in general, uh, some people get it very frequently, and other people never get it at all, regardless of like cardiorespiratory fitness. Um, effectively, the forearms pump up to a point where you can no longer you have no more fine motor control of your hands, which on a moving vehicle is general badness you can't control the throttle you can't grab the front brake the clutch or whatever your hands are effectively numb and it hurts and so what do you do either stop riding or you just send it and hope for the best a number of professional motocross racers have gotten elective fasciotomies in order to basically relieve the pressure in their forearms there's like four small incisions for all four compartments of the forearms interestingly though uh, there's like a pretty high failure rate for for these procedures where the the fascial tissue actually scars down and it gets worse than it was to begin with. But some people have had successful uh, fasciotomies. Okay, uh, right after this break, we'll talk about uh, the incidence of rhabdomyolysis, the diagnosis of it, and the treatment. We'll be back right after this. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. At Parker, our purpose is simple. 
We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode 266 with Dr. Austin Baraki. We're talking about rhabdomyolysis. All right, let's talk about the incidence here. Now, unfortunately, there's no really good data on incidence of rhabdomyolysis with exercise or sports participation in general. We just don't really know, like, how often does this happen with, like, people who work out? How often do they get exertional rhabdomyolysis? However, there are a number of known risk factors, some of which we've already discussed. So certain medications like amphetamines, other stimulants, uh, even antihistamines, certain antipsychotics, uh, alcohol, uh, statins even. Uh, Austin, have you seen statin-induced uh, rhabdomyolysis? It is exceedingly rare, uh, but the only types of people who are going to see it are people like me working in a hospital setting. So yes. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah. Also dietary supplements, particularly those containing stimulants. Um, we don't think caffeine, again, is a, a strong contributor to rhabdomyolysis, but other stimulants, synephrine, uh, for example, or others or banned stimulants that uh, have made their way into various pre-workouts uh, can increase the risk of exertional rhabdomyolysis. Extremes in the environment, so high or low temperature, very high humidity, uh, training at altitude, particularly for individuals with like altitude sickness, sickle cell trait, other sorts of things like that. Uh, I found a pretty good data set on uh, sort of cultures with what are called extreme leadership. So effectively in situations like an athletic department, uh, in the military, for example, or even gyms that have uh, placed an excessive emphasis on winning at all costs and this sort of idea that doing more training, more work will necessarily lead to better performance, uh, perhaps, you know, with uh, uh, excessive risk tolerance, per- that's going to increase uh, the sort of uh, risk of rhabdomyolysis. Um, and those are all extrinsic sort of causes. Now, intrinsically, there are medical conditions. So individuals with infection, uh, individuals who are dehydrated, individuals who have hypo or hyperthermia uh, or have history of heat stroke, for example, uh, a number of genetic, metabolic or autoimmune disorders, uh, previously uh, subclinical in particular. So people don't know that they have them and then they go do like a really hard workout or, you know, I just imagine somebody on like a, you know, uh, I'm especially at the new year, like I'm going to do like a, you know, go ruck challenge or something or like some ultra endurance event. And then it's like, oh, it turns out you had a glycogen storage disease. And so you're at risk for actual rhabdomyolysis. Sickle cell trait, as we mentioned before, being deconditioned, especially in the setting of like rapidly accelerated physical training. Uh, And also, again, this high motivation or drive to persist. And this is pretty common in military trainees and other athletes, uh, for example. And so that's kind of like the perfect storm. If I was trying to work up like a a specific scenario where I thought rhabdomyolysis risk would be elevated, it'd be like a person who was previously really well-trained, highly motivated in in an environment where you know, failure is not an option or quitting is not an option. They perceive that it's not an option and they're just sending it over and over and over and over again. It's like, yeah, 
and particularly if you're not well trained, that that seems to be particularly risky. And oh yeah, and it's hot outside. And uh, by the way, you're not used to any of this exercise. So uh, good luck. Yeah, this reminded me of a of a case that I saw back in in residency years ago of a guy who was uh, I think he might have been like in his 30s or something like that, and he was um, not super well trained and decided to apply for the police academy. <clears throat> and so he was going through the training program for that with uh, I presume a coaching organization who was you know built to prepare him for that. And uh, this was in in, uh, in South Texas, where I was at the time. Uh, uh, so warm. They their training for that day was uh, in a in like a garage kind of setup, warehouse sort of thing, where they closed the garage doors. They turned off the fans. They were not allowed to have water because you have to be hardcore um, for this job, I guess. And uh, what he did for his session was basically thirty minute AMRAP body weight squat. As many body weight squat reps as he could continuously for 30 minutes and uh he ended up getting rhabdo his hit i remember his ck i have a weird memory for these things i think it peaked at like forty-eight thousand or something which was actually not as high as i expected it to be after that sort of thing um but yeah he ended up being stuck in the hospital for days until that resolved he had a particularly rough course too so basically all of the features that you many of the features you described here were present in this dude uh but in general for for the folks listening it's like it's given that you laid out earlier this spectrum from DOMS to rhabdo. If you consider the risk factors for DOMS and you turn those up to 11, then that's what can lead you to develop rhabdo as well as these other extrinsic sorts of things. So if you think about, um, you know, doing way more than you're prepared for on something new with or without other underlying risk factors or something like that, that's how you end up with, with rhabdo. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to signs and symptoms of rhabdomyolysis. We've covered a few of these, but we'll discuss them in more detail. So muscle pain is very common, uh, and muscle pain when present is typically most prominent in the muscle groups that were like worked during the exertional sort of task, uh, commonly in the thighs, shoulders, low back, calves. Um, other muscle symptoms include stiffness and cramping. But again, these can occur anywhere, like our initial case, Ab the abdominal region, abdomyolysis, if you will. Uh, muscle weakness uh, is also common, uh, depending on how severe the muscle injury was or muscular damage was. And again, it usually occurs in the same muscle groups that were affected with pain and swelling that were active during the exertional task. I guess there's no such thing as like a referred rhabdomyolysis, like you're not, it's not going elsewhere. Okay. Uh, as far as the muscle swelling goes, it generally develops with fluid repletion or maybe gets worse with fluid repletion. So once you start giving the people fluids, the swelling is a little, a little bit worse. Less common though upon a hospital admission. And there's two main flavors of swelling. One is called myoedema. This is non-pitting, which means if you press on it, you're, the, the fingerprint doesn't stay. This occurs after rehydration, and uh, that's usually in the uh, muscles themselves that were sort of affected. Uh, and there's also peripheral edema, which is like in the ankles, uh, for example, and it's pitting. So when you press on it, your the finger imprint kind of stays. And this uh, occurs with rehydration again, but most likely in individuals with that kidney injury. Effectively, the kidneys aren't working as well to handle all that additional fluid, and the fluid's got to go somewhere. So it just sits in your in your lower legs, for example. No more no more ankles for you for a period of time. Uh, again, the urine is uh, dark. This is often referred to as a classic sign, but is present in relatively few cases. And in other causes of rhabdomyolysis, for example, people with uh, heat illness or people with infection or whatever, you can get systemic sort of symptoms. So general feelings of badness, what uh, academics call malaise. You can have fever, tachycardia, rapid heart rate, nausea and vomiting, and again, abdominal pain. Now, our, our case report here did have abdominal pain, but it wasn't from like the systemic sort of issue is just due to the glute ham developer sit-ups 
you know what? We could also say it's from the toaster bar because maybe she was just fine with the 60 gluteam developer <laughs> setups. It was the 15 toaster bar that put her over over the top. But again, these systemic sort of findings are usually not from exertional uh, type causes of rhabdomyolysis. All right. So let's talk about diagnosis. So how do you actually diagnose rhabdomyolysis? So the first thing is this history. So like what was going on, uh, particularly if it's exertional rhabdomyolysis, there needs to be some sort of like physical task or challenge that was recently completed. Uh, and then the next step on is moving to a urinalysis. Now, urinalysis is a fancy way of saying you do a urine collection and then test it. Um, usually you're looking for a uh, positive heme uh, this effectively means that there's iron in the uh, in the urinalysis but no red blood cells so it's not actually blood so you're like hmm i got iron but no red blood cells where else could it come from oh maybe it's myoglobin unfortunately this myoglobin this positive heme test of the urine is not detected in over 65% of patients and this is because myoglobin has a rapid half life about 2 to 3 hours which is much shorter than ck's half life that's 36 hours so this dark or cola colored urine in an athlete is like an early sign of exertional rhabdomyolysis or it can be caused by several other conditions some serious and some trivial and i feel like it's a good time to actually talk about those. So in general, dark urine in an athlete deserves prompt evaluation. If your urine looks funky, you should probably see a doctor about that. Um, in cases of rhabdomyolysis, the urinalysis, again, will be positive uh, for uh, heme, but no actual red blood cells. Um, and again, these things peak tending to be 12 to 24 hours before CK levels, again, because the half-life is relatively short. Other subtypes of patients that have dark urine and a positive urinalysis for blood, but not just uh, heme without blood, um, these people can have metabolic myopathies. So they have dark urine, uh, but they typically have little to no muscle pain. And when a metabolic myopathy is suspected, you basically get an auto consult for a specialist. You usually call neurology for that, somebody with like a, a history of this, or who do you call? These, pe these people don't really make it to me. This is stuff that gets figured out in pediatric populations because you'll have kids that end up getting rhabdo over and over and over again, like early in life with relatively little provocation. Got it. So okay. not my territory. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Uh, hematuria, which is a fancy way of saying actual red blood cells in the urine or hemoglobin urea, uh, may present also with dark colored urine. Uh, and you can get some of this with intense, prolonged exercise, uh, but it rarely leads to actually dark colored urine. But if someone's got blood, actual blood in the urine, there's a whole nother differential diagnosis for why somebody has blood in the urine. But rhabdomyolysis is not one of those causes. But in any case, if your urine looks funky, particularly if it's dark, that probably should prompt a call to your doctor for an evaluation. Yeah, especially especially if there's not an immediately obvious like reason of oh, it's transiently darker than usual, be, and I haven't drank anything all day. But once you, as soon as you chug some water, it clears up. Like you don't need to go to a doctor for that. Or oh, I ate a bunch of beets, and so my urine's like funky, you know, darker colored. That's actually quite common, although can be interestingly associated with uh, with underlying iron deficiency in some people, but not always. Uh, but those are relatively benign things that should clear up quickly. If you have it and it's not otherwise explained or it's not clearing up or something, then yeah, I agree. Yep. Okay. So that's the story on the urinalysis part of the diagnosis of rhabdomyolysis. Second, next part after the history, the urinalysis is a serum CK. Again, that's creatine kinase. So serum CK levels at presentation of rhabdomyolysis are usually at least five times the upper limit of normal. And just as a reminder, the upper limit of normal is like 140 units per liter. And so five times is really nothing. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're talking about like a, a level of like 600 or 700. And I bet you if we tested our CK levels after training, I would imagine that regularly our CK levels are five times the upper limit of normal. Do you think, so, think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't bat an eye at a level of 
500 or something like that in the vast majority of situations. <laughs> so. Yeah. Most of the time in exertional rhabdomyolysis, we're thinking about uh, ranges in 1500 on the low level to over 100,000, although that'd be more consistent with like a sickle cell trait or somebody with a really high level for other reasons. Uh, but in a series of 475 hospitalized patients with rhabdomyolysis, the mean peak creatine kinase level uh, for a variety of different causes and for patients with both single and multiple causes of rhabdomyolysis range from 10,000 to 25,000 units per liter, which again, is not as impressive as our case report. She was up at 77,000, which is uh, impressive. I Also, do you think, what do you think is more uh, concerning for a doctor to say to you? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> or, 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 or some, what, what did I just say with the eye? Impre- they're impressive. Yeah. yeah. I think is it those impressive? Are, those are pretty synonymous, I think, in my opinion. I use okay. both frequently. <laughs> yeah. To be like, hmm. Wow. All right. So the serum CK, as we mentioned earlier, begins to rise within two to 12 hours following the onset of this sort of muscular damage and usually reaches its max level within 24 to 72 hours, but not always. Uh, A decline is usually seen within three to five days of the cessation of whatever is causing the muscle injury. But again, not always. Um, Creatine kinase, again, has a serum half-life of approximately one and a half days, uh, about 36 hours, and declines at a relatively constant rate of approximately 40 to 50% of the previous day's value. I remember in uh, during the intern year, I had a couple cases of rhabdo, and like we always expect like, oh yeah, the value should half by tomorrow if we reach the peak. But if it didn't reach the peak, it's going to go higher. And once we reach the peak, it should go down by half day by day. Now, in patients whose CK levels do not decline as expected, ongoing muscle injury or an underlying muscle disease or the development of compartment syndrome may be present. Have you ever seen anything like this where somebody's CK level just keeps going up? Uh, not usually. Well, so it, it's uh, pretty common for, for it to sometimes trend upward, um, particularly if they came in very soon after their exercise bout with symptoms, then it might go up for a bit before it starts to turn around. Um, what I have seen getting at this point, though, is situations where they came in and it looked like rhabdo and I'm treating them and then it comes down and down and down and then it plateaus. Um, I remember one woman in particular who I was treating for what seemed to be rhabdo from you know excessive exertion around the house and it came down and it just stopped going down at 9,000. Um, and when it got to 9,000 and then the next day it was 9,000 and I was like, this is not normal. And so she ended up, uh, we ended up diagnosing her with an underlying muscle disease called, called polymyositis that kind of predisposed her to developing uh, the the uh, exertional rhabdomyolysis on top of her muscle disease. So I've definitely seen all of these scenarios play out before. Yeah. Now, again, the widely accepted sort of diagnostic threshold for uh, creatine kinase in exertional rhabdomyolysis is greater than five times the upper limit of normal. It's very sensitive, meaning that if you use this cutoff, you're going to catch everybody who has rhabdomyolysis, but it's not very specific, meaning that you're going to get a lot of false positives. You're like, oh, wow, it's elevated. Maybe you have rhabdo, and most of these people probably don't. Uh, For example, in a prospective study of about 500 different Army recruits in basic training, the CK level on day seven of activity averaged 1,220 units per liter with a range of 56, which is normal, to over 35,000, which is decidedly abnormal. That might be like a hyper-CKemia, for example. But none had any clinical symptoms consistent with exertional rhabdo or required treatment. All of this is to say that CK levels will vary based on individuals, based on their fitness levels, based on uh, age, gender, size, all sorts of stuff, uh, and that there's really no accepted sort of threshold for like Oh, CK, the CK level definitively means exertional rhabdomyolysis unless it's very, very high and otherwise not useful anymore. 
like if, if somebody said the CK level of 100, over 100,000 was diagnostic for exertional rhabdomyolysis, you're like, yeah, probably, but who cares? If it's over 100,000, you got bigger fish to fry, you know? Um, there are additional labs that uh, we think are useful. So for example, a complete blood count to see if somebody has an infection or if they're hemolyzing or actually breaking down red blood cells. There are others, obviously, depending on the individual's personal medical history and like what's going on. The, we also think getting a complete metabolic panel to assess kidney function uh, and also uh, liver function would be useful, particularly you're looking for like calcium and phosphate uh, ions and also what's their creatinine level. Because when the labs show that a person has kidney injury, which is defined uh, by the uh, improving global outcomes criteria from uh, Kidaigo as an increase in serum creatinine by 0.3 milligrams per deciliter or a serum creatinine greater than one and a half times somebody's baseline level or a really low urinary output. So effectively, somebody has uh, an AKI based on any of these criteria. Effectively, that warrants admission to the hospital for inpatient management, which begs a question, Austin, like, why is it important for somebody who has acute kidney injury based on their labs? Why is it important that they're actually admitted to the hospital? Yeah, the first is that it's treatable, uh, and by by treating it, and you know, it, we even admit people who do not have a, a acute kidney injury, but who meet criteria for you know significant rhabdomyolysis in order to try to prevent them from developing acute kidney injury. Um, for multiple reasons, we've mentioned and alluded to some of the potential short-term life-threatening complications, like from elevated potassium levels and things like that. The other, um, more longer term, is that severe acute kidney injury can increase the risk of developing chronic kidney disease in the long term. And chronic kidney disease, especially if it progresses to uh, you know more advanced uh, end-stage kidney disease, um, is something that can land people on dialysis or potentially make them you know need uh, kidney transplantation. And I'm certainly not saying that um, it's very common that patients are you know developing rhabdomyolysis and end up with a kidney transplant as a result. Uh, but we view you know, your kidneys function, ability to filter your blood. It's something that most people take for granted, way too much for granted, until you realize uh, what life is like uh, when you are not able to do that for yourself and you need a dialysis machine to do it or you need uh, a transplanted kidney to do it for you. So uh, pretty significant um, uh, complications can arise and it's both treatable if it does develop and preventable if it hasn't developed yet, but you still meet criteria for, you know, uh, you know hospitalization for rhabdomyolysis. Yeah. Uh, and in addition to that sort of complete metabolic panel, also drawing calcium and phosphate levels, because uh, while these are known to correlate with exertional rhabdomyolysis severity, also can, uh, uh, in addition to potassium levels, can be a risk for arrhythmias. So you're getting EKGs on everybody that you're, uh, you think uh, might have rhabdomyolysis? Yeah, I mean, usually it's already done for me by the, by the ER, but if they haven't done it, then it's something I'm usually taking a PCAT for sure. Are you guys doing any serial EKGs? Like over time, you just do one and done, and if somebody has symptoms, you'll do it again? Yeah, I would only do it up front. Um, and uh, if it's abnormal up front, then I might do it again, or if they have ongoing electrolyte issues, but I'm not just doing them around the clock for, for the sake of it. Yeah, EKG. All right, so what is the normal clinical course for patients that you've seen with rhabdo? Now, understanding there's this many different causes, and so patients will present with different sort of features, different types of rhabdo. Uh, what is the in general, normal clinical course for somebody with the exertional rhabdomyolysis? Yeah, so I'll frame this A through the lens that, you, as usual, I have a bit of selection bias in terms of the context in which I work. And so I would say the vast majority, let's say the vast majority of people who have some muscle pain after exercise, they have delayed onset muscle soreness and it's fine. And they can just go about their life and, you know, either continue doing that if they enjoy it or adjust their programming to not experience that again. If you do develop a little bit more severe injury. Um, I suspect that there's probably a, a, a 
to your point of that we don't have data on incidents, I suspect that there's a fair amount of people who actually develop a little mild touch of the rhabdo and never seek out care. And they end up, you know, just living their life and they end up recovering and they end up doing okay. So that's probably a, another pretty large swath, if I had to guess. I wonder how close we've ever come. If we, if, if any of our, in our training history, we might've met criteria for rhabdo, just never sought out care or something like that. And then there's going to be people who end up coming to the ER and a fair amount of people who come to the ER, I never meet them because maybe they get a liter or two of fluid and their actually levels are already going down and they don't look terribly bad and they can get sent home safely. So that's another big swash, swath. And then from there, we have a fraction of people who end up needing my attention, needing to get admitted to the hospital. And most of those people that I see do fine. I admit them. I'll give them some fluids. Sometimes within a day or two, they're already better. Sometimes they need several days, sometimes a week. That's uh, on the longer side for, for most of the people that I might see. And, and the most unlucky would be needing to stay in the hospital for longer than that. Um, usually due to complications like needing dialysis or needing to be in an ICU or something like that. And that's the tiniest fraction of people. So I would say that overall, in my little section of this whole spectrum of the people who I see who end up needing to be hospitalized for it, the vast majority do totally fine uh, with supportive care, with plenty of fluids, good attention to their blood tests and things like that. Um, they end up, you know, recovering, getting, you know, getting through it without actually experiencing significant kidney injury, and they can go about their life. And I usually, you know, have a talk with them before they leave, uh, where I review how they got to that point and talk to them about their return to activity, because usually they're pretty concerned about that. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is a good segue into the treatment for rhabdomyolysis. We've mentioned fluids, fluids, fluids all the time. And so I, I was really hopeful to come up with some sort of consensus statement or like clinical practice guidelines on like what fluids to use and like how much to give. And unfortunately, that just doesn't exist. I mean, there's a, a guideline from the International Society of Nephrology Renal Disaster Relief Task Force, which sounds super official. And they just recommend using isotonic saline rather than alkaline fluids in the field. And I'm like, wait, no alkaline water. Well, that's going to be a big <laughs> bummer for, for some of yeah. these uh, grifters in the space. But is there any particular type of fluid that you use or any particular type like rate that you, uh, you give people fluids? Yeah, I mean, I think only internal medicine people and nephrologists are the folks who really nerd out about this stuff. And there are various like theoretical reasons why one fluid may be better than another, but they've not been really studied too much. And so most of the time I'm using saline and rarely I'm using other stuff. Um, and then, yeah, similar. It's really like, the, the goal of treating the IV fluids is to is to generate a sufficient rate of urine output. And so I will just do what needs to be done in order to generate that urine output. And then there are also a bunch of other considerations for like how fast or slow and, and frequency of monitoring and things like that. So, yeah, there was some data I found where people were, were advocating for including some glucose in the in the infusion to like if somebody was particularly hyperkalemic and you were treating that alongside of the uh, exertional rhabdomyolysis, like, oh, you put a little glucose in there that can help with the uh, the hyperkalemia. And it's like, cool, where are your outcome studies? And it's like, no, oh, that doesn't exist. So I don't know. Again, like you said, internal medicine docs and nephrologists are the only ones nerding out about this way <laughs> above my pay grade. So yeah, yeah, can't relate. <laughs> Um, and I assume that when people are admitted, you know, it seems like, yeah, you'd want to figure out like, why are people actually, why do they get exertional rhabdomyolysis or rhabdomyolysis in general? And so you're doing this sort of like, okay, what could be contributing to this? And I, I suspect that their clinical course while they're in the hospital kind of leads you in a particular direction. In our clinical case that we started this podcast with, okay, pretty clear came from exercise. I guess more interestingly though, her levels didn't really drop down as fast and as regularly as you would like expect, particularly 25 days later, she's still like pretty elevated. 
I guess, and if we assume that she's not actually exercising, I guess that could warrant some additional workup. Like, hey, do you have an underlying sort of autoimmune disease or like a sickle cell trait, for example? Um, yeah, what are you guys doing in the hospital to sort of come up with the like sort of root cause analysis, so to speak? Yeah, I'm just, you know, listening to the person's story uh, of what led them to come in and seeing if the preceding events uh, seem proportionate with what I'm seeing on their labs and things like that. So if I saw somebody who said, I've never done a glute ham sit-up and I just did 60 of them with toast to bar and now I have a CK of 70,000, I say, yeah, I buy that. That's okay. <laughs> that fits. That seems proportionate. I'm usually just going to like stop it there. I'll treat them. And if everything uh, proceeds as I would expect, um, and sometimes do, people do de decrease a lot slower than I would like, uh, but I still don't really bat an eye at that. That's actually quite common that they might decrease a little bit more slowly, but I just treat them until the end point. And if they get down as low as I would like, which our usual target is to get them down below about 5,000, and then we can usually stop IV fluids and, and let them go home, there's actually not really a need to even recheck CK levels beyond that. Um, the, the scenarios where I would you know, dig a lot further into the causes is if the story does not seem to proportionately explain what's going on. If they're like, oh, I did some, you know, I, I took a walk and now I'm coming in and my CK level's 20,000. It's like, okay, that is not proportionate. And so I need to dig a little bit further. Let me dig into, you know, what medicines you're on, what other medical conditions you have. Do you have any other signs or symptoms of like an autoimmune condition, genetics, you know, family history of this stuff, et cetera. So it really comes down to like proportionality is the first part. And then um, does your clinical course follow the trajectory that I expect it to. And an example of when it didn't is that woman that I talked about earlier, where I treated her. To be fair, she was a little bit disproportionate uh, when she came in, but I said, eh, I don't know, maybe maybe her exertion was harder than she remembers, but then she just like, her level stopped going down. And so I was like, okay, well, clearly there's some ongoing muscle injury going on and she had an autoimmune disease attacking her muscles. And so we figured that out. So those are probably the two ways that I go about that. Yeah, yeah, there's a, again, a number of maybe, I don't wanna call them clinical practice guidelines, or just effectively consensus statements by various authors uh, and groups that have effectively, they recapitulate exactly what you just said. If somebody gets rhabdomyolysis, exertional rhabdomyolysis after like a low intensity sort of effort, it's like, okay, need a workup. If they have abnormal signs that are like, huh, that's interesting, further workup, like before return to play, before discharge, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And there are no like real safe discharge criteria either. Yeah, you want to get this, the creatine kinase down to below 5,000, but <laughs> these retrospective reviews of uh, 30 and 41 cases respectively found discharge CK values ranging from 1,400 to 94,000 and 10 to 61,000. And you're like, can you imagine some, sending somebody home with a CK level of 94,000? Absolutely like, not. <laughs> like what, dude? Like, I have, I have, I will admit, I've discharged people before they got down below five thousand, but that's usually they're still in the five to ten thousand range. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So there's there's a, a lot of ways, you know, in practice that once you get a feel for this, you get some experience with it. There's even like a, a risk scoring tool called the McMahon score that we sometimes use to like evaluate people's risk for you know needing kidney, you know, having kidney related complications and things like that. And so there's a lot of behind the scenes decision making that goes on here. But whoever discharged that patient. At 94,000 is a, is a savage who probably yeah. should have wow. been sued. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. Uh, as far as an evidence-based guideline on return to unrestricted activity, yeah, we don't really have that. There's been some proposed guidelines uh, that was validated by a study in college football players, but to be fair, that sample size was only 10, so I don't know how confident I would feel in those guidelines, but they seem reasonable to me. It's basically this uh, four-phase 
approach where phase one lasts a minimum of 72 hours, three days, and focuses on significant activity modification and early follow-up. So effectively, somebody get discharged from a hospital uh, or if they're being managed outpatient because they didn't have uh, acute kidney injury, effectively, they're told rest for 72 hours. Uh, or you can perform light activity indoors, get seven to eight hours of sleep per night, drink plenty of fluids, and they also recommend increasing sodium intake through foods. So things like peanuts, nuts, pretzels, soy sauce, canned salmon, canned beans. I don't actually know what that's for, I assume they're just trying to make it like you're consuming a bunch of saline <laughs> with all the extra salt from those things. It may, um, be, it may be because if they're recommending the person drink a ton of water uh, to try to reduce the risk of them getting hyponatremic. Yeah, dilution. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they say in this phase one, so again, the first sort of 72 hours that resistance training should be avoided until phase two and then added progressively. So this progression of phase two is dependent on the outcome of repeat laboratory findings for CK and lack of clinical symptoms. So they're recommending sort of repeat CK test and urinalysis uh, repeated 72 hours after the last known test. And if the results are less than five times the upper limit of normal, which would be like a level of 600 or 700, something like that, and the urinalysis continues to be normal and the patient is symptom-free, then they can go into phase two. Now, phase two introduces light outdoor, but no strenuous activities and lightweight resistance trainings is like body weight stuff or 20 to 25% of one RM uh, exercises. They also recommend that these activities should, if possible, be supervised by a physical therapist or athletic trainer, to which I ask, why? What is a physical therapist or athletic trainer going to do? Yeah, I'm serious. I, I, like, yeah, I don't see it. A, a necessary role for them in particularly in all cases yeah i could i can i can tell by the way you have some knee valgus in your body weight squat that your ck level is high like come on guys i did like i feel like they just added that in there to make it sound nicer without actually thinking about it to to your to your common saying it makes sense if you don't think about it <laughs> <laughs> they also recommend that the athlete should follow up with the provider after one week and may progress to phase three if clinical symptoms are absent. And in phase three, the intensity of the exercise gets higher. Resistance training can be performed at 50 to 75% of one rep max. Agility drills at 70 to 80% of max effort. Don't know how they're rating that, but that's what they recommend. And running can begin at 50 to 75% of normal time and distance. I think that's all reasonable. I, it's all made up, to be clear. But it seems reasonable enough to me if you were looking for some sort of guidance here. And then finally, phase four returns the athlete to full physical training with follow-up as needed. Uh, this was the more interesting thing in these four phases is that because muscle pain serves as a clinical guide for progression through the phases that they recommend uh, against pain relievers like Tylenol or NSAIDs um, so as not to mask pain, which was interesting because in an original case, she was sent home to take NSAIDs and drink water. And it's like... Man, she could have been masking maybe some of this excessive muscular pain. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's actually a reasonable uh, piece of advice. And I think anybody who just had bad rhabdo, especially if I'm discharging them from the hospital, I mean, using NSAIDs for the discomfort, given that all the concern here is around kidney stuff, and that's something that NSAIDs can impact. Um, I mean, I think that uh, just to be clear that risk to the kidneys from long-term use of NSAIDs is, in general, I think... Um, I don't want to say overblown, but people put a lot more concern into it, whereas they're actually relatively safe when used in reasonable dose ranges and things like that. But in the short term, when somebody has just experienced a bout of like potentially pretty kidney uh, risking a, a medical event, I would say NSAIDs are uh, absolutely would not be recommended to take. And uh, I think that, um, you know, I, I agree that these guidelines are reasonable, even though they are made up. I agree that I don't think a, a, a athletic trainer or a PT needs to see everybody who just had rhabdo. I don't even think there's a, you know, enough of those resources to for for such a thing um the time frame is also 
made up, uh, but is fine as a, you know, if it had said like progress, I don't know, 15% per week or something, we would have been like, yeah, sure. That's fine. Uh, you know, uh, just the, the, you don't want it to be too quick, uh, doing too much too soon because that's the same way you got into this sort of thing. And so oh. to that, to that end, I agree that like the use of these symptoms, as it says, use of muscle symptoms or pain, muscle pain is a guide for progression. That's really one of the main things that I have a conversation about with people. I actually don't know where this idea comes from that you need to like continue serially checking CK levels in the subsequent weeks, yeah. particularly if you don't think that there was some undiagnosed underlying cause for the, the rhabdo. Um, I, I don't know that I see a strong need for that. We saw that in the original case. The girl got her CK checked multiple more times, and I'm like, okay, I still don't care about it. It's, <laughs> yeah, 25 you know, days it's, later. Like, yeah. It doesn't matter because the main focus, the, the risk of kidney injury is you know very, very, very low at that point. So we don't need to be monitoring that so much as like you know following the person's symptoms, just like we would in actually, I, I view this recovery from rhabdo similar to how we view rehab from anything else. If you've listened to our content on managing pain and injury, you know, adjusting load and and volume and, and, and all that stuff up front. And then if your symptoms are dramatically worse after a session, well, you've already gone too far and you definitely shouldn't do that after rhabdo. So pull it way back and then your rate of progression should be moderated in accordance with these symptoms. They should not be worsened. You should not experience, you know, significant increase in, in muscle soreness. And so that means that, yeah, I agree. The first, you know, couple days afterwards, I'm telling people to, you know, generally just like, do their activities of daily living, but probably not return to training for a few days. And then once they do like scale way back on the intensity, and, I, and that's usually a conversation based on what I usually ask, like, what does the person um, prefer to do for their training? Are they mainly a lifter? Are they, you know, did they just like decide to pick something up? Did, was it, you know, running relate, whatever the case is. And I'll just on the spot usually make up just to give them some kind of concrete guidance instead of leaving them like nebulous um, advice. I'll make up and say, why don't we start, you know, at this percentage of where you were before mm -hmm. and then on the fly because I, I guess this is an advantage of of being facile with uh, exercise programming and 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 uh, the concepts around this is i can kind of come up with a, a progression uh, a scheme for somebody over the subsequent usually it's over the matter of like weeks for most people um usually many weeks leading getting into like a, a couple you know maybe like six eight weeks or something like that sometimes a bit longer if they've had a particularly severe bout um not usually too much faster than that i don't set expectations that you'll be back to normal stuff in like two weeks i think that's probably still a bit fast if you've required hospitalization for something like this um so yeah that's usually my the the, the way the conversation goes uh, that i have with folks yeah and I, I, we should reiterate that if you were following an intelligently programmed exercise, you know, program, rhabdomyolysis is really not something to be concerned with. And in general, the causes of this are effectively doing stuff that's way outside of what you're prepared to do, uh, plus or minus some environmental sort of risk factors, plus or minus some culture sort of <laughs> uh, uh, effects here. The problem is that uh, exertional rhabdomyolysis has put you into a hole effectively so it's like okay now you're like recovered but you're still not ready to jump into like unrestricted training not that you're you know a again an intelligent program wouldn't have been suitable for you before it's just well you put yourself in this little recovery pit and so we got to get you out of it so if you wanted to do all right a quarter of what you were doing before at you know a quarter of the intensity for the first week or two that would be fine and then 50 percent of what you were doing before 50 percent intensity fine two weeks now you're at 75 again it's all made up but yeah, I would expect that after about two months or so that somebody would be back to unrestricted training, but don't do the stupid thing you did before. That's the, that's the whole thing. Like if you see 60 glute hand developer sit-ups on a workout, 
and you haven't prepared for that, just skip it. I promise the trophy isn't worth it. I promise the trophy isn't <laughs> worth it. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, this is like the same fundamental concept when we're when we're like people ask us, how do I reduce the risk of injury or something like that? And aside from outside the gym factors, like making sure you're adequately, you know, have adequate sleep and, and stuff like that, it's prepare for the thing you're trying to do and then do the thing you prepared for and like deviate from that minimally <laughs> if you yeah. can if you wanted to absolutely minimize the risk of injury now we recognize like you know the whole idea around crossfit in particular the unknown and unknowable it's like defined by like being unprepared for things and being adapted to everything which is a very challenging task but it means you need a lot of preparation that's why like games athletes are like exceptionally well prepared for for all of the things that could be that have been thrown at them that could be thrown at them etc and for for somebody who's not at that level I think uh, restricting yourself a bit more to, you know, doing the things that you're prepared for um, and maybe a tiny bit more, um, but not deviating wildly in terms of volume or like the scope or type of activity is generally wise for people who don't want to uh, increase the risk of injury in general or of uh, rhabdo in particular. Yeah. And in general, start slow, build up from there. But yeah, no, nobody is running like an auto-regulated, well-thought-out program and oh, I got rhabdo without some sort of underlying cause. Now, if it does happen, that requires medical workup, figure out what's going on, treat that to the best of uh, our current, you know, available uh, interventions. And then, you know, again, scale, scale up over time back to unrestricted activity. But uh, yeah, I think we sufficiently covered rhabdomyolysis, episode 266 of the Barbell Medicine podcast. Thanks to Dr. Austin Brockett for joining me on this podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.